This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Sunday, September 4th, 2022. I'm Ryan Schmelz. The Biden administration's student loan forgiveness plan could impact millions, as the problem of paying for college still exists. One senator thinks he might have a solution. You have a significant endowment. You ought to be the endowment ought to be paying part of uh, financial aid for the, the students that need financial aid. We speak with Florida Senator Rick Scott about a bill he says will hold universities accountable for skyrocketing tuition costs. I'm Jared Halpern. Is a predicted red wave receding? Even if they win 15, 16 seats, well, that gets them to about 226, 227 seats. Still, that's not a huge majority. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Senator Rick Scott from the state of Florida has introduced a bill named the Changing Our Learning, Loans, Endowments, and Graduation Expectations, or College Act. Yeah, I think it's really important to understand public education is for the benefit of students. He claims the bill will make universities take accountability for what he believes is the unacceptable price of education. And so what we've got to do is figure out how do we make it public education affordable for everybody. And so when I was governor, what I did is I stopped tuition increases and I, I focused on making sure our schools are focused on the students getting a job, keeping their costs down and finding jobs that they paid well. So I think what Biden approach the Democrats are taking is just throwing more money without any accountability is wrong. This canceling student loan debt is, is unfair. So the, the hardworking electrician plumber that didn't go to college and didn't run up thousands and thousands of dollars of debt is going to pay off the debt for doctors and lawyers. This doesn't make, this doesn't make any sense. So my, so my bill does a, does a variety of things. It basically does the things I did uh, in Florida of trying to create accountability. Number one, it says that our public institutions ought to be on the, on the hook if students default on their debt. That will push the public, our, our, you know, our, our schools, if they want to take federal money, that they're going to be on the hook if a student defaults. So they'll, these, these schools will focus on these students getting jobs in area and, and get, making sure they get degrees where there's a job at the end. Number two is it's going to require our schools to put out a lot more information about, about what the academic opportunity or what, you know, what the job opportunities there, depending on what the, on the type of degree. We have too many degrees where there's no job at the end. And that's not what our, our institutions ought to be doing. Um, it's our, I think our endowments ought to be working with our students first. I mean, I think our, you have, you have a significant endowment. You ought to be the endowment ought to be paying part of uh, financial aid for the, the students that need financial aid. So it's it's really just creating accountability. But we, you know what we've got to do is we got to get the cost of our, our universities down, and our universities have got to move towards being very very much more result oriented, i.e., a job at the end of it. 
And so uh, some of this bill focuses on endowment funds, and obviously we've seen the numbers on how much of an endowment fund some of these schools have. It's in the several billions of dollars. Now, uh, what is the goal here, and how do you think this solves the problem, and how do you think this can drive down the cost of higher education? Well, as you'd expect, I'm very appreciative of the people that help our universities by giving them contributions and try to give back because they've had success in their life, and that's, I think that's great. For the way I look at it, though, with universities with significant endowment, they ought to be part of the, the solution of the cost of, of education. So if you have an endowment of greater than a billion dollars, but less than five billion, you ought to, you know, the university ought to do a, a cost match of uh, 25% of the cost of financial aid. And as your endowment goes up, uh, you have these billions and billions and billions of dollars. You ought to, you ought to be part, pay, you know, the university ought to be paying part of that uh, financial aid eligibility rather than uh, the federal tax dollars. Uh, so I, all, all mine does is, is work to make our universities more accountable for what, you know, for what happens to these students. When I was governor, I, I promoted a $10,000 four-year degree program. Uh, it was called, you know, it, it, was, it was set up to where you were told that you could get out in four years. If your total cost would be $10,000 or less, and it was in areas where there was a job at the end. So, and so it, it's, it's exactly what we ought to be doing. Our university system, our state college systems, our community college systems, they're there for the purpose of educating our students to be able to get a job. Um, so, uh, and, and, what, and then the other thing, right, not, I don't, I don't want to do is I don't want to have hardworking Americans pay for, you know, that didn't go to college, pay for the college and graduate degrees of a bunch of, a bunch of people that are making them, you know, good money because they're doctors or lawyers or some other job like that. It's not fair. And now, do you think you can get bipartisan support on this? You know, we've heard Democrats say before that this is something they'd be open to looking into. Some Democrats say that. And then we even had a member of the Biden administration on Fox News uh, Sunday uh, acknowledge the issue. Um, is this something that you think you could get bipartisan support on? Absolutely. I believe all of us have to focus on how do we make education more affordable. Public education is for everybody, not for rich. It's for everybody. So, so, and, and everybody at the end of their, their education ought to have a job. So the way you do that is you make our, our public institutions accountable uh, for, you know, what's it cost? You know, do you get a job? And, you know, God forbid, you hope you ne- no one ever does, but if you default on the student debt, the university ought to be paying part of it. They'll, they'll create accountability. And are you open to amendments if you, if you can get Democrats to come to the table on this? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the way good legislation, you work with people. So uh, I put out my ideas um, based on things that I worked on when I was governor of Florida, and it worked. When I finished as governor of Florida, we were the number one higher education system in the country, according to U.S. News and World Report. We had the lowest tuition in the United States, um, and, so, and people were get, our, our students were getting jobs. Um, and, you know, we added, while I was governor, 1.7 million jobs. So it was my whole focus was how do you make sure – Everybody, rich and poor, have the same opportunity for success. I grew up in a very poor family. We lived in public housing. My mom said, thank God you live in America because you can be anything you want to be. I want to make sure that's actually true. And so this bill has faced some criticism so far. You know, the in, from according to an interview with Inside Higher Ed, a, a member of the uh, Association of American Universities wanted to point out that there were uh, a lot of restrictions when it comes to how endowment money is spent because a lot of the universities are kind of at the bidding of the, whoever makes the the donation. Now, 
kind of what they said is that any returns generated by those contributions can only be used in accordance by the wishes of the donors. Is that a concern for you? Well, I'm look, here's what I tell people. I put out my ideas. Don't just say, oh, it's a bad idea. Come out and say, here's how you, we can improve it. So if someone has a better approach, but I think if you have significant endowments in these universities, and I'm thankful that people want to get back to the universities, then a portion of that ought to go to go to financial aid. I mean, we all have to understand this. Our country is running trillion-dollar deficits every year. We don't have unlimited dollars. We've got to figure out how to spend the dollars we have more efficiently. And this is a way to create more accountability, make sure our students get good-paying jobs, uh, make sure they can afford uh, this and don't end up with a lot of debt. Um, and 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 hold, this is it's all an accountability program. But I'm always open to better ideas. While you were governor of Florida, you did invite Yale to come down to Florida after Connecticut uh, was considering a tax mm-hmm. on on that university's endowment. Uh, how is this different from that? Well, the difference is I, I have no interest in increasing the size of government. What I have an interest is in helping students that need financial aid. So this is this is actually doing what a lot of universities say they're they're going to do with their endowments, help people with financial aid. Well, this will do it. All right. And, and do you think this can create more transparency when it comes to uh, knowing how these how this money is being spent by these universities? Absolutely. And also, it's going to help our students make better decisions about what, what type of degree they ought to get. So they, they, they know that if they get this degree and it costs this amount, that amount of money, this is what they're going to make. Uh, and so the, our, our schools ought to be very transparent. When I became governor, you know, we set up a program where the dollars that were allocated to universities were allocated based on three things. What's it cost to get a degree? So you had to keep your cost down, help people get their degree as quickly as possible. Number two is, did they get a job? Number three is, how much money did they make? That way, they were very focused on the end result. When I went to school, and most people, when they go to school, they're thinking, how much is this going to cost me? Do I get a job? How much money do I make? One more criticism we saw in that same article is that the leader of the American Council on Education said uh, this bill has no distinction between low or middle and wealthy students that institutions be forced to pay would be regressive. Is there, do you plan on putting any distinction in here so that the money goes to lower income students or do you think it, it works the way it is? Well, I'm, I, like I said, I'm always open to, you know, better ideas if somebody has a better idea. But if they're, if a student is going to get financial aid, they probably need the money. That's, that's, that was the whole focus of, of what I put out. And, and do you think this could potentially, if you're forcing the top endowment getters to, to spend their money more uh, in a different way, do you, you think that that could trickle down and then force uh, university tuitions at all levels to become more competitive? Oh, absolutely. I think with more information, when consumers are responsible, they can make and they have the information to make good, make good decisions, they will. And so where does this bill stand right now? Yeah, and and how how fast can you do you think you can move this through Congress if in fact it gets enough support? Well, I'm very hopeful that we can move now when people are starting to understand this unbelievable co- co- student loan cost uh, to uh, to our students. So hopefully, uh, I'm continuing to talk to other senators to get their ideas uh, to get good bi- bi- bipartisan support so we can get this passed so we can help our students. Uh, get good paying jobs, but in, when the end, don't end up with a whole bunch of debt. And have you have you spoken to anyone from the Biden administration or the Department of Education as to if this would be something they'd be interested in either uh, partnering in or, or potentially signing into law? We, we've sent it to them and asked for their feedback. Uh, and have you heard anything back yet? Not yet. All right, Senator Scott, anything we're missing you'd like to add, sir? We, got to, we, we have a lot of opportunity 
uh, to help our students, and that's what this bill would do. Senator Rick Scott from the great state of Florida, thank you so much. All right, have a great day. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Is the red wave turning into a red brook, receding, ebbing back from earlier predictions? There has certainly been polling to suggest Democrats are improving their midterm prospects. Still, it would take something far less significant than a wave election for Republicans to win back the House. Fewer than five seats need to flip for Democrats to lose the House and Speaker Nancy Pelosi to give up the gavel. And that prospect is also a source of a lot of speculation here in Washington. What would Pelosi do if she's no longer Speaker? Simply return as minority leader, a post she has had a couple of times since becoming the top House Democrat in 2003? Does she have a successor in mind? And House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is the presumed Speaker-in-waiting with a GOP-controlled House, but how much unity will he need from rank-and-file Republicans? The head of Congress returning from the August recess and the post-Labor Day sprint to Election Day. My colleague, Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram, shares his reporting on what the next Congress could look like. We have been down this road so many times with Nancy Pelosi when they've talked about her future. Um, Some of it, to be frank, has been a little bit unfair to her. Some people have invoked age from time to time. She's 82 years old right now. But let me give you the history of this. She became the whip in the Democratic Party in 2000, late 2000. Then she became the minority leader when Dick Gephardt uh, decided to run for president one more time uh, in 2004. So he stayed in Congress, but he did not serve as the minority leader. She did uh, starting in late 2002, early 2003. The, The leadership election was in late 2002. And then she became speaker for the first time in 2007, first female speaker. Well, they lost control of the House in the historic midterm elections, the shellacking, as it was called, 63 seats in 2010. I tell you, to a member up here, almost everybody thought she was out the door. People thought, you know, President Obama was in charge. Maybe she would become the ambassador to Italy, the ambassador to the Vatican. You know, she has these Italian-American roots. You know, she has a lot of grandchildren. You know, there's a lot of other things that she might want to do. Turns out she stayed, which surprised everybody. And, you know, you have to remember that Democrats then at that point, you know, they had passed Obamacare. They had passed cap and trade, this environmental bill through the House, the stimulus package. These were very controversial things. And some people thought that Pelosi pushed them too hard to pass these bills. Now, you don't get these big majorities to sit on them. You get them to pass your agenda, which is exactly what the Democrats do. But they burned a lot of seats in so doing. And guess what? Obamacare is still the law of the land. So people thought she was going to be out the door. As I found out, Jared, though, is that she didn't kind of want this to be pinned on her and thought that she could lead, you know, Democrats back into the majority at some point. And if she were to step aside at that stage, 
Well, then it would be viewed as just on her. You know, there were as you go went out, you know, through the summer and the fall of 2010, you would see these signs fire Pelosi and mm-hmm. they would do the TV ads where they would morph the Democratic candidate or the Democratic member into Nancy Pelosi. Well, the unexpected day that she said, yeah, I'm going to stick around. I remember, in fact, I was at a meeting at the RNC as they were going back through the election returns. And it was just amazing that we heard that she was going to stick around. And by mid-afternoon, the RNC had taken their banner that they flew all fall outside the RNC on, on, on front of the headquarters here at the foot of Capitol Hill that said, fire Pelosi, that said, hire Pelosi, because they said, this is great. She, we think she's toxic. Stick her around. This is great for Republicans. And it's amazing. See, this is how long this conversation has gone on. So let's get to 2012-2014. We thought that she was going to step aside in late 2014 and not stick around for 2016. Well, so there was a caucus meeting in the basement of the Capitol, Democratic caucus meeting. And Anna Eshoo, Democratic representative from the San Jose area, Silicon Valley, was coming out of the restroom. So she's very tight with Nancy Pelosi. She's known Mm -hmm. her for a long time. And she had these big sunglasses on. And it was obvious to me that she had been crying in the restroom. And I saw Ms. Eshoo and I went up to her and I said, A, are you okay?" And I said, B, do you have any insight as to what Pelosi is going to announce in this meeting? And she said, no, I I don't. I just I just hope it's for the best, although I'm not thinking, you know, that's going to be the case. It was obvious that Anna Eshoo had been, you know, upset about this, you know, emotionally disturbed because she thought that her friend Nancy Pelosi, this was the end of the era. (laughs) This is 2014. And she walks in and guess what Nancy announces? I'm I'm sticking around. I'm here. (laughs) And guess who wins the majority in 2018? So here we are. We've had a few signals saying this might not be the worst election for the Democrats. In fact, maybe if things big asterisk by this. Maybe if things trend a certain way, Democrats might even hold on to the House. That is a very tall order, but we just don't know yet. I mean, there's been some, you know, polling that suggests that maybe the the red wave is, is you know, the ripple or something, whatever, whatever you want to call maybe a a smaller majority for the Republicans. But yes, exactly. But one would let me let me me close with this point. Would would it, it would be hard to believe, though, if Nancy Pelosi, if the Democrats did pull a rabbit out of the hat, Mm-hmm. and held the House, that they would not return her to the speakership. Well, sure. And I think that's because that was sort of where I was going to go, right, is in the absence. I mean, who is there a a sort of, you know, who's 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 in the bullpen? Right. I mean, you have Stinney Hoyer, you have, um, you know, who's also uh, been in Congress. I think was he the same class as Nancy Pelosi. They've no, he no, he has seniority to her. He wow. came in okay. 1982. You know, she came okay. in a special election in 1987. You've got, you've got, uh, and, uh, and, and you have Clyburn. to remember that they that they worked together. They were interns together. They were yeah <laughs> in the office of Senator Bill Brewster from Maryland. Yes. People forget that you know Nancy Pelosi Pelosi's is from Maryland. Yes, her, her and they father. are. They've always yeah. been political rivals, and sometimes yeah. their relationship has been rather fraught. Which is but one of the, also, and, and she's mean, always you, beat him in leadership races. You look at the leadership roster. You have Stinney Hoyer. You have uh, Jim Clyburn. Jim Clyburn. That's right. The, these are these are not sort of the, the future leaders of, of the Democratic Party. Well, here's a scenario. so in the event that like Pelosi were to say, "Listen, it's been a good run. It's time to move on and sort of pass the torch or, or gavel or, or whatever." You know, is there sort of an heir apparent? Who, who else can sort of? 
corral a, you know, in the same conversation with, you know, happens with, with Republican leaders too. These are big, diverse caucuses, and you need somebody that can kind of coalesce all of these different, you know, wings of the party. Let me start with the people who are there right now. You mentioned Steny Hoyer. You mentioned Jim Clyburn. Uh, a lot of people disagree with me on this, and it probably won't happen, but it's something that I have thought about, that since there is no clear successor, if Pelosi were to step aside, you know, maybe she would say, and this would be the kiss and make up moment here, because there's always been this tension to some degree between Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, that she says, well, of course, I am happy to hand off to my Maryland colleague, because I'm from Maryland, <laughs> fear the turtle, you know, something like that. Uh, is, father, I could see so that. Listeners understand her father and brother both served as, as, uh, as mayors right. of, and of Baltimore. Her father Baltimore. was in Congress Absolutely. as a representative. Absolutely. Yeah. The other scenario is you have a senior member like Jim Clyburn, senior member of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, to become you know the first African American speaker or leader, mm-hmm. or you know so that's a possibility. But then you get down to the the younger roster. Mm-hmm. Now, any time in leadership, yes, Hakeem Jeffries is the Democratic Caucus, so he would be. You know, I was looking the other day; they were talking about the teams that are most likely to win the national championship <laughs> this fall, and you got Georgia there, you got Alabama, you got Ohio State. So yeah. you know, so 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 you know, he, the, the, Hakeem Jeffries is the Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama. He's the one you got to start with. Again, member of the Congressional Black mm-hmm. Caucus, somebody who yes, who seems to have the broadest reach. Mm-hmm. But then you have people like the vice chair, Catherine Clark from Massachusetts, uh, Adam Schiff, who is someone who is very mm-hmm. close to Nancy Pelosi. And, and, and don't for, don't think for a minute, Jared, that if she steps aside or moves on, that she hasn't put or kind of, you know, uh, you know, given her imprimatur to who she thinks should be in the leadership. And because of some of the choice assignments she has given her fellow Californian, Adam Schiff, so that's a possibility. Uh, this is why it's hard to figure out. As I always say, leadership elections are not partisan politics. They are particle politics. Who gets <laughs> into leadership is decided at the subatomic political level, and you can't see. Remember around here, there it wasn't that long ago that Paul Ryan said he did not want to be Speaker of the House. Well, guess who got to be Speaker of the House? Or that Eric Cantor really wanted to be Speaker of the House. And guess who did not get to be Speaker of the House? And going back further, I can talk to you about people like Tom Reynolds, a name that nobody even remembers around here anymore, who was a congressman from Western New York, who thought would succeed Denny Hastert as the Speaker. Uh, I mean, again, it just goes on and on. And the people who were supposed to be Nancy Pelosi's successors, Rahm Emanuel, when he was congressman from mm-hmm. Illinois. Uh, Chris Van Hollen, now a senator from Maryland. Javier Becerra, now the Health and Human Services Secretary. Steve Israel, the former congressman from Long Island. And all these people have been out of Congress now for years. <laughs> that's how long Nancy Pelosi has been there. And that's why it's so hard to read how this goes. But, but I'll tell you this. I remember some years ago, it was during the August recess, and, of course, I'm always worried about strange things happening during August. Beware the Ides of August. You were correct, and by the way. This August was unusual. It's, it, it was right there. Yeah, Mar-a-Lago and everything else. So she had called a press conference here at the Capitol in August. And a couple of minor political alarm bells went off. And somebody said, could this be her announcing this is it? And her office was like, no, no, no. This is her usual weekly, quote, unquote, press conference. Even though we were in a recess, she happened to be here in Washington and as an aide said to me at the time, they said, Chad, look, they're going to have to drag her out of here. That was the quote. <laughs> we talk about this in the macro national sense, what's going mm-hmm. on in Washington. Mm-hmm. 
I talked to Mark Baraback, who is the political columnist for the Los Angeles Times the other day and you know covers San Francisco, has covered Nancy Pelosi extensively over the years. And I was struck in our conversation that immediately he started to talk about what happens with the district in San Francisco. The fact that right. the she odds, is a, a congresswoman for, for a district. Yes, that's right. And 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 again, you know, the Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama here is Christine Pelosi, who is her daughter. If that, that there's been rattlings that if her mother you know, were to step aside and again, she's running for reelection. Nancy Pelosi is this fall as a member in the city of San Francisco. So if she were to step aside, you know, early next year or something mm-hmm. like that, you have a special election, would that be the person that she wants to hand off to? So so Pelosi is kind of looking at this in two ways. Number one, OK, what's the leadership here on Capitol Hill? You know, I mean, again, to say, you know, I've been here for 20 years as the leader of the Democratic Party, a speaker or, or, or Democratic leader. Number two, mm-hmm. what do we do in San Francisco? And when I tell you the history of that district, then things become very complicated because you start to think about who, uh, what the legacy might be there. Well, number one, you had a guy by the name Phil Burton, who had been the congressman forever there. He died. Sally Burton was his uh, wife, took the seat, and then she got sick and was passing away. And she wanted Nancy Pelosi to get that seat back in the mid-1980s. And so, you know, Nancy Pelosi, sometimes she will talk about the Burtons with great reverence. And so she wants to make sure that that seat in that district, you know, kind of holds up to the standard. And she often talks about the Burtons. So that's another consideration in all this. Mm -hmm. But you know what this all comes down to, Jared? It's about the math. It's about the math. It's about the math. If we get to December, when they've sorted out all the special elections, or or, I'm sorry, the recounts and everything else, Mm -hmm. and they have this caucus meeting late November, early December, whether the Democrats are in the majority or in the minority, we will know what Pelosi's decision is when she knows, because she will look at the caucus, understand the makeup of the caucus, be able to understand where the votes lie. If she has the votes or doesn't have the votes, keep in mind that she is probably the best vote counter in the history of the Congress, and that is not an embellishment, and then decide if she has the votes, guess what? She's still around. If she does not have the votes, she will not be in leadership, and it comes down to the math. Let's finish with the math on the other side. Is there any reason to doubt that Kevin McCarthy, that the Republican leader of the House, would not be speaker if Republicans win back the the majority? It depends depends on the size of the majority. Yeah, and it does come down to the math. So, you know, it wasn't that long ago that people were talking, Newt Gingrich in mid-July, the former speaker himself, that, you know, the Republicans might win 70 seats. Mm-hmm. Those numbers have been tempered, uh, you know, substantially now. Uh, he said, maybe, you know, Speaker Gingrich is correct here, that this wouldn't be obvious until October. Well, it's not October yet, so we'll see. But that said, uh, people don't think it's going to be 70 seats. And even if they win 15, 16 seats, well, that gets them to about 226, 227 seats in the majority of the Republicans. So, you know, so they're up 15. You know. But still, mm-hmm. that's not a huge majority. You know, you're, you know, 218 is, you know, the, what you have what to have in the House. Yeah. And how you elect the speaker is thus. You have to have an absolute majority on the floor. First thing the Congress does when they start an absolute majority of the entire House, not the most votes. So, in other words, if the House and sometimes it's less than this because there's absences on opening day or seats that aren't filled or whatever. But if you start the Congress and say you're at full capacity and you've sworn in 435 members, you have to have 218 votes. And you could see if there is a majority 
that the Republicans have of only 226 seats or something, I can, off the top of my head, give you eight to 10 names on the Republican side of the aisle, people who would not vote for Kevin McCarthy. There is a reason Kevin McCarthy did not become the speaker in 2015 when John Boehner stepped aside. He didn't have the votes. And so he has rehabilitated himself somewhat since then. He's in much better standing, much better standing than he was. He has associated himself with former President Trump. He, he used to have this uh, fight with Jim Jordan, the Republican from Ohio, who is now the ranking Republican on the mm-hmm. Judiciary Committee. They seem to be, you know, in league together now. So that probably shores up the votes a lot. And probably if, if Jim Jordan is backing Kevin McCarthy, then Jim Jordan, then probably Kevin McCarthy does become um, – the speaker Speaker. if Republicans are in the majority. But again, there's a lot of baggage there and it doesn't take that much. And so we have to see who these members are. And Kevin McCarthy, frankly, is not as good a vote counter as Nancy Pelosi. In other words, he can't come in and read the room the way she can and say, oh, I got the votes or I don't have the votes. He he doesn't have as much experience. (laughs) It's it's that. But it's also, you know, it's that, you know, the the, the skill and the tip of his pinky, you know, that, you know, Pelosi Mm. and certain people tend to have. She just has it. And 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 this is not a newsflash. Kevin McCarthy was never known as a tremendous vote counter when he was the whip uh, for the Republican Party. and maybe maybe he was a pretty good vote counter because he saw the writing on the wall in the in the you know fall of 2015 when John Boehner went away. So maybe he gets credit in that respect. But uh, it, it could be uh, closer than people think. And and when you do elect a speaker, you have to do it first. You can't do anything mm-hmm. else no in the House of Representatives. No other vote can happen on the floor without a speaker. Right. And and we have seen so. scenarios. We have to go back to the 19th century here. Uh, Hal Cobb, who is a eventually became the speaker from Georgia. They sat around for four months till they decided who the speaker is. Multiple so, ballots. <laughs> so, Georgia, you know, you know, maybe we'll be talking about this come next April still. Well, we'll, we'll see. All right, Chad. Thanks so much. Thank you. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, President Biden is back in some swing states, spending Labor Day in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania before an end-of-the-week visit to Ohio. An August recess ends, at least for the Senate, with a government shutdown hanging over the end of the month. We'll see what else tops the pre-election agenda. For all of us at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.